But Father, we come before you. We thank you for your graciousness, the unmerited favor that you extend to us, the goodness that has always been a part of the people who follow you. And we also thank you, Lord, for your mercy. We recognize in all humility that we are sinners. We are sinners that have been given your grace and you have not judged us according to their, those sins. For your, you know our frame. You know how frail we are. You know our flesh. So, Father, with all that, your grace and mercy, we give you thanks. There's no way we can repay you. We are just grateful for what you have done for us and given to us. And as we look at the book of Exodus here, Lord, as Moses has the people and they are introduced to God, we ask that you would help us to learn Father, learn what it takes to have an encounter with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai. And Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession." Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, put limits up or put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him, whether man or animal. He shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, may they go up to the mountain. After Moses had gone down, the mountain to the people he consecrated them and they washed their clothes and he said to the people prepare yourselves for the third day abstain from sexual relations on the morning of the third day there was a thunder or there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast everyone in the camp trembled then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire the smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace the whole mountain trembled violently the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him 
the Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you, but the priest and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. And so we have this set. The people come in. They are brought to the mountain by Moses. It is a three-month trek from when they left Egypt to the time that they got there. Exactly three months. Now, the total time from when Moses showed up after seeing the burning bush and went to Egypt and all the plagues, it's probably over a year. It took a year from them to go from Egypt all the way to Mount Sinai to meet God. Now, there's this preparation time in, in this chapter here, it kind of outlines itself, where God reveals who he is and what his desires are to the people. And I gave it three different headings, revelation through invitation, revelation through consecration, and revelation through demonstration. These three things are in this chapter. First is revelation through invitation. It says that when they got there, Moses went up to God, right? So he climbs this mountain. He gets all the way up there to God, and God starts speaking to him and telling him what he must do. He reminds the people, God reminds Moses to remind the people of what he did in Egypt. He performed these miracles. He was able to bring them out without a scratch, so to speak, and put down, subdue the enemies in Egypt. Now, he offers them a conditional covenant here, which we will get into in a moment. And he says to them that if they are obedient, blessing will be brought to them, but they must be obedient. And this, again, is a conditional covenant. This is not an unconditional covenant. If you remember all the way back with Abraham in the book of Genesis, he was given a covenant by God and he was told to separate several animals and split them in two. And God later up, later on showed up in the night and he walked between the two halves. And this was significant of a covenant that was to be made. There was blood that was shed and dividing the animals into two pieces and God showed up and said I'm going to make this promise to you Abraham that you will be tied to the land you and the generations that will come from you that will be God's promise to the people now that was unconditional that God would eventually follow through and give all of the land to Abraham's descendants it hasn't been fulfilled yet completely It will be fulfilled completely when Jesus Christ comes back, who is a descendant of Abraham. Now, the conditional covenant that these people were given was, if you are careful to obey all the commands that I give you, then you will remain in the land. If you don't, you will be taken from the land. And we know there were at least two captivities, the Assyrian captivity and also the captivity where they went down to Babylon. They were removed from the land. And it wasn't until May 14th, 1948, that the Jews got back into the land and declared that it is theirs. That is the anniversary date, May 14th, 1948. So for thousands of years, they were out of the land, but God is fulfilling his promise again. 
Now, the part that is unconditional is God says, I'm going to make sure you're in the land, but if a group of people at a particular time, if they're disobedient, I'm going to remove you from the land temporarily, but you're going to inherit it forever. Matter of fact, the new heaven and the new earth, you're going to have the city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, which is going to come down. The earthly Jerusalem is going to be transformed into this beautiful heavenly city. That's about 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. And so it goes from the physical to the spiritual promise. Just like this earth is here, it is the physical. God says he's going to wipe it out. He's going to destroy it. Not only this earth, but the entire universe. Destruction is coming, and he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And there's not going to be a solar system as we understand it. There's not going to be a sun that lights it up. And so this is the length and breadth of God's promise to Abraham that it will be fulfilled in the Jews occupying the land. Now, we are spiritual Jews as well. I'm not negating the promises made to the nation of Israel. Those are physical promises, and they are going to remain. That's part of dispensationalism as opposed to covenant theology, if you're familiar with those terms. This idea that God has restored the nation of Israel, kept them as a people for thousands of years without disbanding their ranks and setting their genetic makeup into the populace, God kept them distinct. And that's what he does with us, too. He sets us apart for heaven. It's the church. We are the bride of Christ. And so I'm getting a little far away from what's taking place here in the actual text, and I want to get back to that. But Christians are also a kingdom and priests, just like God said, if you follow my commandments to the nation of Israel, you will be a kingdom and priests for God. You will be a holy nation. I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4. Take out your Bible, open it up. I want you to see this, that not only were the people in Israel, the actual Jews, going to be restored (coughs) to their place of prominence, but if you were to go to the book of Ezekiel, you'll see that the temple is going to be restored during the millennial reign of Christ, and there will be some sacrifices going on at that time. The sacrifices that were done in the Old Testament look forward. Chances are the sacrifices in the millennial reign of Christ will look back. It's just how we are saved as well. Abraham had faith. He looked forward to the Messiah. And we, as being the children of Abraham, the children of faith, we look back to the cross and the Messiah and his crucifixion. So both are saved by the same means. It is by faith. But we are called to be a kingdom of people, and also priests. That is our task. It says this in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 4. It says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is a faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us, here it is, underline it, highlight it, star it, point arrows to it, to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. Do you ever think you'd be wearing a robe? Oh, you're going to be a priest. You're going to have actually a robe, not like the priest in the Catholic Church, but your robe is going to be what color? 
white. You're going to have this white robe. Probably chiffon. You know, be able to just go back and forth. It's going to be great. And you're going to have this crown or maybe several crowns on your head. I, I don't know if they're going to be actual physical crowns. But there's going to be something up there that people are going to go, Oh, look, he was wise. He saved souls. Oh, look, he's full of wisdom. Oh, look, he's done so many great things for God. And there's several crowns listed in Scripture that you'll have. You're going to look great. You're going to look good. And you'll be up there and you'll turn to somebody that you know here in the church and you're going to go, you look good. And they're going to say, no, you look good. And you're going, no, we all look good, don't we? And it's all the Lord who has done this for us. And we are going to be these priests. And we are going to be interceding for people. And that's in our heavenly realm. We're going to be brought back here to earth for a thousand years. I don't know that we'll be arrayed as such here We'll recognize each other. But just as Jesus was here in his resurrected body, I believe he'll bring us back the same way. Our bodies will be just like his and we'll be interceding for the people here as priests for a thousand years. And we will be a kingdom of people. If God ever calls a meeting in Jerusalem, Jesus sitting on his throne, and he goes, I want my church to come to Jerusalem. Boom! We're there. We're all in Jerusalem. Because remember, we don't have to travel, probably. Because if our body is like his, Jesus just materialized. Beam me up, Scotty. You know, we're right there. That's kind of how it's going to be, I believe, according to Scripture. So we will all be there. We are going to be this kingdom of people. And the people who are left through the tribulation period who remain will repopulate the earth. And they will look at us and say, oh, there's one of the holy ones over there. Oh, there's one of the saints over there. They're all over the place. They're like ubiquitous. They're in every single city and county and town. Yeah, that's what we're going to be doing. And we're going to be checking on the people. We're going to be like assisting shepherds to Jesus Christ. Now, not that he doesn't know what's going on. He does. It's for our benefit. It's for our building up in our faith. That's why God's going to do it. And so that's what lies in store. And we get all that from the Jews going to Mount Sinai. If they are obedient, they will be a kingdom and priest. For God. And they were to be the ones, the purveyors of the faith that God gave to them. They're to be a witness to the Gentiles. Now, they blew that on several occasions, but that was God's original intention. So we have this revelation by consecration. You have Moses, who is informed by God. He goes back to the people. He summons the elders. Their response was being one in submission to God, whatever God says. And then Moses went back to God and reported to God what the people said, like he needed Moses to go back to God and tell him what he said. He already knows, but Moses was doing this, going back and communicating. So he goes up the mountain. He comes down the mountain. He goes back up to the mountain, and God says, okay, now I'm going to come down, and you're going to go back down the mountain. So he goes back down the mountain. So up, down, up, down. He's being obedient to God, interceding for the people, talking to God as a man talks to God face to face. That's what he did. And God instructed Moses. He did this for the purposes, showing up and being there on the mountain. He did this for the purposes of establishing Moses as the ultimate leader. They were supposed to look to him because of the miracles that were going to be performed. Who in the New Testament do you know that did that? Jesus Christ. God established him because of the miracles that were performed. That established not only the individual, but the words he spoke. Because if the words he spoke were followed by a miracle, the people knew that it was true. And God can still act that way if he chooses to, but God sometimes doesn't do many miracles because we lack faith, right? We just refuse to believe. But back then, 
Everybody got to see this. The entire community of the Israelites came to Mount Sinai. Now it says he was going to come in a dense cloud and he was going to speak so that the people could hear. I would have loved to have been there to hear the actual voice of God. Or when Jesus was baptized, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there to hear that? The people said, what was that? I don't know. Somebody says it? Yeah. Well, what, what was it? He said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I heard it with my own ears, but I don't believe it. Is there a speaker? There weren't speakers back then, right? How did this happen? It was just everywhere. By the way, when you read through a narrative in Scripture, and this is a narrative, it's just telling you what happened. Like, yesterday I got up out of bed, I brushed my teeth and took a shower, and I got in my car and I went over to the Del Mar Fair and I hung out for a while and ate a deep-fried Twinkie. And you're going, okay, yeah, that's what you did on your little vacation. Sometimes when you read narratives in Scripture, it can be like that. So Moses got up and he walked to the top of the mountain and he talked to God over there. That is so dull. I mean, what is going on here? You can't imagine what was taking place. I can hardly wait to get to it. Now, he said, you're supposed to consecrate the people for the third day. Now, when he came back down, he goes, this day, tomorrow, and on the third day, I'll appear. Jesus was crucified this day, went into the grave all day tomorrow, and on the third day, he appeared. Do you see the connection? Again, this is in the... Old Testament concealed and the New Testament revealed. All of these stories are to point directly to Christ. You just have to make the connection. Now you might say, well, how do you make that connection? How, how did you make the connection between the three days in the Old Testament and the three days in the New Testament and Jesus Christ rising from the dead over here and Moses having to wait and consecrate for three days? It is so simple, especially being led by the Spirit of God. When you get into this stuff, God reveals it to you. And it's not anything that the whole body of Christ goes, I don't think so. The whole body of Christ goes, amen. I see that. God has revealed that to me. The the Scripture is of no private interpretation. But the person who is not a believer, who does not have the Spirit of God, will poo-poo that and say, Y'all, you're just making that up. No, not making. God meant for this to be this way. The whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament, all the blood being given, all of that, it is for the sake of pointing to Christ. And that's what this is. And so they had three days that they had to wait and they had to consecrate themselves before God would reveal himself. Jesus was in the grave for three days and there was tremendous turmoil as this was happening, as he was being crucified, went into the grave, he was resting there, came out and he was revealed to be the actual son of God for real for the people because he rose from the dead. He had power over death. And so that's how we make these connections here. Then there's the revelation through demonstration. God revealed himself to the people. Now, how did this happen exactly? By way of illustration, I recently flew in an airplane across the United States, a jet, actually. It was at 30,000 feet. And it was during the middle of the night. It happened to be a red eye from the West Coast to the East Coast. And as we passed Texas, I opened up my shade. It's the middle of the night, and I look out. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was solid light coming from the cumulus nimbus clouds over Texas. 
And Texas was just hit with raging floods. It wasn't just one lightning strike or two lightning strikes. The switch was left on, so to speak. And when one would crack, another would begin. And it was just, I've never seen such a storm. And at 30,000 feet, I don't know how many miles away we were. We could have been 25, 30 miles away. And the cloud was just lighting up. And then you would see the lightning go from one end as far as you could see all the way to the other end as far as you could see. And, you know, I'm in the airplane doing this. My face is right. can't believe what I'm seeing there. The power that is in just these few clouds and lightning is coming down. Imagine being at the foot of Mount Sinai and God shows up. What kind of lightning storm do you think there was? There was thunder, right? There was thunder going on, so there's lightning as well. When a volcano goes off, there can often be lightning and smoke and you know, everything that goes on with that. If you're right at the base of the mountain and this is happening... How far away are you actually? Just imagine going, if you've been to Borrego Springs, go up to the base of the mountains or down in Palm Springs or Palm Desert before you come out of the desert. Just get right up to the mountains right there. That's how close the people were. And the lightning coming down, the lightning that was surrounding the people, do you think you'd be a little frightened? God's showing up here today. And they were told that this was going to happen. There was thunder, there was lightning, there was a thick cloud. Now when the Bible uses adjectives like that, thick, How thick do you think the cloud was? It wasn't like a mist that blows in the early morning marine layer. It wasn't like that. It was so thick, if you were in it, you would have died. The smoke would have consumed you. Imagine the thickness of a volcano erupting and you're right there in the smoke. That pyroclastic stuff that comes out of there, you would instantly die if you approached anything like that. So that's right in front of you. And... You know, some people might say, oh, it's just a volcano going off. No, God descended down in fire. I've seen the previews of Independence Day. Have you seen that? Where the big ship comes in and it's coming into the atmosphere and it's just billowing with fire and smoke as it comes in on this preview. Well, imagine God showing up. It's like that. It's coming. He's coming down and this thing is just billowing with smoke and fire and lightning. And what are you doing going? Cool. I don't think so. I think your knees are getting a little shaky at this point, and this is not all, all smoke like from a furnace. Now, back when they had these furnaces and there was coal and things like that burning, it was just raging. It was hot smoke from a furnace, a thick cloud, lightning and thunder and fire, and not only that, but earthquakes. And again, the Bible uses adjectives here. What kind of earthquakes? Severe earthquakes. Did you guys feel the earthquake that was a few weeks ago? <clears throat> we were in our bedroom as my wife, myself. We were, happened to be up. My granddaughter was there. And it was quiet. And we just felt this. Go, oh. And we, we all stopped talking. We just looked at each other. And then it goes, boom, like that. All of it just like hit, you know. But first it was just rumbling. And then bam, that's what it did. It says here that the earthquakes were severe. So if they're severe, you're standing there like this, and you're probably thrown off your footing. They're so severe. The whole mountain just goes, I'm going to move now. And you are standing there. You're probably knocked to the ground. I mean, when God shows up, he does it in a big way when he wants to show his magnificence. And this is what he did. And using these adjectives which are here, you can take them as superlatives. It's like hyperbole. 
recently heard a story about a speck inspector. You know, you look about, you look to somebody and they have the speck in their eye, which is a flaw in their own life, but yet you have this beam, this log that is sticking out of your eye. It's not just a speck of sawdust, right? That's hyperbole. Well, this is hyperbole, but in reality, it is actually taking place here. And then on top of all of that, there's a trumpet. And this trumpet is blowing and it gets louder and louder and louder. How loud do you think it was? I'm sure there are men standing and saying, Mommy, make it stop. You know, it was probably just so loud. And the show that God had out there, this narrative is anything but boring. And so this is the revelation through demonstration. God is revealing himself to the people, people his, his magnificence, his power, his omnipotence is what it's called. It's all coming to display. And God is going to have his hand on Moses so the people listen to Moses. So we have this revelation by consecration, revelation through demonstration. I forgot the first one, revelation through invitation. On the first one, God said, let my people go so that they may go into the desert and worship me, right? Well, God's intent was to bring them to this place. He invited them to come. Now Moses was a reluctant servant and the people were reluctant to accept him but after all the miracles had taken place even though they believed what God had said they started complaining after that. But God gave the invitation. So he gave the invitation. He consecrated the people said for three days you're to wash your clothes you're to get ready. No sexual relations during that time and then there's this demonstration. That's what happens. So with all of this, we have to draw a conclusion and an application. First, God has given us all an invitation to meet him, to be part of his family. Somehow, somebody came to you and they said, have you ever heard about Jesus Christ? If you remember back, who was the first person that you ever knew that was a Christian? Maybe it was your parents. Maybe it was a Sunday school that your parents took you to. Whoever it was, however you got there, God sent that person. Now you might think, no, it was just circumstances. Oh, contraire. Acts chapter 17 talks about this, that you were born for a particular time, particular place, that you might be saved. And so any other time in history that you may have existed, you may not have gotten saved. This is the opportune time to get saved for you. That's what God did with the people, the nation of Israel. It was the opportune time he remembered his covenant with them, brought them out. It, was, it brought to full fruition the, the time that they were in slavery, according to what God told Abraham in the book of Genesis, that they'd be enslaved for 400 years. It had drawn to an end. It was the opportune time. The same thing with us. Now, we are reminded of the works which he performed to bring us to salvation. The Israelites, they had the plagues. We had the cross, we had the miracles, we have the prophets, we have the apostles, we have the word. We have all of those things as evidences that God is calling us. If somebody takes all of those evidences and they say, I don't believe God exists. Come on, are you kidding me? You're just going to take all of this evidence and you're just going to shove it to the side. And that is not even the evidence for the argument of morality. That is not even the evidence of the 
the idea of creation versus evolution. This is just strictly the word and everything that happened in the word and Jesus Christ showing up as a prophet. God did this over millennia to make sure we got the message. Then secondly, God requires that we are given to consecration, that we are set apart, we are dedicated, we are devoted to him. And not that we can be before, like the Israelites, they prepared to meet God, but as we are called to God, he consecrates us. He puts us to the side. Now, when we do that, he tells us to repent of our sins. Now, is anybody going to be sinless that accepts Christ? No, you're not. I'm sorry, you have this body, and until you shed the body, you're not going to be sinless. It's going to be part of you. It is in your human nature. You're going to fall, and that's where God's grace and mercy comes in. His mercy is he doesn't judge you according to that because you've asked him to forgive you. You've come to him humbly and said, will you please forgive me? And with that, when we sacrifice everything in this life, that's what Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, that we're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. You guys are well familiar with that verse. And then thirdly here, God has and will give a demonstration of his awesome power, just like he did when he showed up during the time of the Israelites at Mount Sinai. He's going to do that in the future. You might say, well, how's he going to do that? Well, he's setting the stage. Didn't the stage have to be set for the people to receive God in his presence? Yes, they had to go through the wilderness. It became difficult. They had to get to Mount Sinai. They had to experience some grumbling and complaining. They had to be without water. It was hot. You know, they needed some food. They had to get manna. All of these troubles leading up to their meeting God. That's what we're going through as well. Do you see any um, economic turmoil coming to us? Uh, What about military upheaval? Do you see any of that coming? Maybe just a little bit? around the world what about uh global political posturing do you see any of that going on do you see there being turmoil just on a worldwide stage what about the rise of immorality do you see that do you see the people calling good evil and evil good isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 says that woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter that is exactly what is going on and God is going to demonstrate that he's going to come in and destroy that whole thing we're we're like at the base of Mount Sinai and here comes God you can see him in the distance the fire's coming down from heaven you go oh man you better be right with God you know it's coming he told us it was coming so God is inviting us to enter into a covenant with him and this is the clincher here this is what we're supposed to take from chapter 19 God makes this covenant And it is all about a covenant. We are under a covenant of blood, a blood covenant. Just like Abraham split the animals in two, God walked between them, and there's a covenant between him and Abraham, between God and Abraham, between Abraham and God. But there's a difference between a covenant and a contract. What's a contract? A contract is where you have two particular parties get together and say, okay, we're going to agree to do this, and because I don't trust you, if you fail to live up to your end of the contract... The contract's broken, right? Covenant is not like that. A covenant or a contract is between you and someone else for things. A covenant is between you and somebody else for your relationship. That's the way a covenant works, like marriage. If you take marriage, you don't sign up and get married. Now, they're trying to do this with prenuptial agreements, but you don't sign up to get married to get stuff, right? 
Now, there are people, women, who are called black widows, you know, things like that, that are out there, gold diggers that marry strictly for the money. They want the money. That's what they want. But when you get married, according to God's plan, as you say, we are making a covenant to give each other to ourselves or to each other, give ourselves to each other. That's what you're saying. If you break the covenant, it breaks what God has set up as his design to be an example of what he does for us in giving us a covenant. If we say, I'm breaking this covenant. I am just tired. I am done. We are completely fine. Rip up the contract that you got from the state of California, right? And you say, this marriage is dissolved. God would say, ain't happening in my lifetime with the covenants that I give. God is the one who promises and he will follow through. You might say, well, he didn't follow through with the nation of Israel going into the land of, or the, the people of Israel going into the land and being tied to that. He took them out and he put them into captivity at least twice. And he just recently brought them out as far as the timeline is concerned. He broke that. No, he's still fulfilling it. He just disciplined them during that time. God is going to fulfill that promise, that covenant that he made to Abraham. And guess what Abraham can do to fulfill it? Nothing. He can do nothing. It is all on God's side. God says, I'm making a covenant with you. You can't do anything with it. And I'm going to give it to you anyhow. And he does this with the nation of Israel. He says to the nation of Israel, I'm making the same covenant with you that I made with Abraham. You're going to get the nation of Israel. You're going to get the land over there on the Mediterranean Sea. It is yours as long as you're obedient. And he knew they weren't going to be obedient. So he was going to discipline for the while and then get them back in a little bit later. But it wasn't contingent upon them. It was contingent upon God. That's what our covenant of blood is all about. God gives us this promise. He says, I will save you. And you say, well, what do I have to do? And he goes, nothing. Just believe. If you believe, I'm going to bless you with this covenant. Just like Abraham. Abraham could do nothing to ensure that his people would be in the land. It was all about God. Now, this begs the question. You start questioning. You go, no, wait a second. You mean I don't have to do anything? I just believe. Yes. That's it? Yes. No, wait a second. Then why are you preaching? Ah, See, that's the kicker, right? The kicker is when you get saved because you realize what God has done, everybody that is a believer says, that's it. God did so much for me, I'm going to do something for him. Remember Jesus when he had a woman who was known for her sins show up and take an alabaster jar and break it over his feet and over his heads. And he, she took her hair and she wiped his feet and he kissed his feet. And those who were inviting him to the meal there were thought it was detestable that Jesus would let this woman touch him. How dare he? Doesn't he know what kind of woman she is? And he said, you know, she realizes that she has been forgiven much. That's why she loves much. The more you realize what God has done for you in this covenant, the more you want to do for him. Not that you're under this obligation. Well, you might say, well, what if I don't have a lot of works? You don't feel you're loved very much. Oh, oh, that's like a guilt trip even when I say that for me. You know, not that I'm a good guy or anything else. I'm just saying that when you look at it from that aspect, if you do little, 
you feel like you're only forgiven a little. If you do a lot, you feel like you're forgiven a lot. And you might say, well, then I need to get on the stick and start doing things, right? I need to do all kinds of work and burn out for God. I need to make sure that I'm burning out instead of rusting out. Is that what you need to do? No, it doesn't work like that. The way that it works is that if you just give your heart to God, you say, God, whatever you want. He'll put a desire in your heart. And you go, hmm, sounds good. I think I'll go do that. And you go out and you perform the work. It's not that you're going, well, let's see, how many works did I do this week? I need to keep a log of these things going on because I know Jesus wants us to do these works. And by the way, I still believe that it's going to add to my salvation. And it doesn't add to your salvation. It just adds to your reward in heaven. Now, if you're doing it strictly for the reward, you're doing it for the wrong reason again. We want to make sure that we fall under this covenant for the sake of Christ, his glorification. He just wants us. He just wants our hearts. That's what the covenant is about. The people failed in the covenant. Will you fail in your desire to follow Jesus Christ and be consecrated to him? Oh, yes, you will. You'll fall. And when you do, what are you supposed to do? You go to God and go, God, will you forgive me? Your word says you are faithful and just to forgive me of all my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I am such an unworthy servant. That's what God calls us to. So we're going to receive communion here in a moment. Before we do... I'm going to let you know. If you've never really made a commitment to Christ, you need to do that. And you might say, why? No more pain, no more sorrow, no more mourning, no more trouble. God gives us a new life. I'll expand on this a little more next week. But how you do that is you say to God, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you can save me from my sins. Cleanse me and make me white as snow. Thank you for the gift of salvation if you just do that and you can do that as the communion is being passed out if you do that you are part of the covenant I'll expand on this like I said next week but if uh, you would have the ushers come forward or whoever is passing out the cup and the bread they're going to pass this out as we're singing a song and if you feel you need to just give your heart and soul to Christ do it and if you feel you need to just kind of recommit take this time and do that